You know, we always say, do not judge a book by its cover. Yeah, that's awesome. Except that's exactly what most of us do. Appearance can be everything, especially in a professional situation, which is why I want to talk to you about that bag you have over your shoulder. Are you still rocking that old college backpack to work or around town? If so, it is time to grow up, look the part, and get yourself a Daniels briefcase. Daniels is a New York City-based men's leather briefcase brand that is making boys look like men, one bag at a time. And the best part is, you can afford this bag before you land the big job. You're probably wondering how. Because they cut out the middlemen. They sell directly to you. That way, they're able to offer a high-quality, luxury leather briefcase at an incredibly reasonable price of $195. Go ahead. Compare that to luxury brand names that start closer to 500 bucks. The look is exactly what you would want to carry into an office, and it's perfect to transition from workday to date night if you have to bring it with you. And right now, you can get $25 off their Daniels briefcase at DanielsNYC.com. Use the promo code Roma checkout and get $25 off one of their leather briefcases. And they offer free shipping. Once again, DanielsNYC.com, promo code Rome for $25 off a handcrafted, high-quality leather briefcase with free shipping. Ditch that dirty old backpack and look like a pro. DanielsNYC.com. What really drove me to keep making this film, I felt like I'd been lied to my whole life. You know, from my parents. Not that they meant to, that's just what they knew. From the marketing, I felt like I'd been lied to and I hate being lied to. You know, so I thought, I've got to get this information out. So I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing until we got it done. It's cracking, y'all. Welcome to another episode of the Jim Rohn Podcast. In fact, a tremendous ep for you today with a good buddy of mine, James Wilkes. James Wilkes glossed to lightning because of his legendary hand speed in the cage. In fact, he won the Ultimate Fighter, USA versus UK edition back in the day, and was killing it in the cage before tearing up both his knees in training. Ultimately, that led him to put down the gloves and purchase a used camera on Craigslist in order to pursue a passion project to make a movie called The Game Changers, a movie that will be released globally in theaters for one night only on September 16th and then exclusively in New York and Los Angeles on September 20th. It is an amazing story with some critical information that every last one of you can benefit from. This is a great ep, ep 93 of the Jim Rohn Podcast, and it's coming at you right now. James, it is so good to see you. It's been a while, but before we talk about the movie, The Game Changers, I want to talk about your journey and how you and I ended up having this conversation. You grew up in England. What were you like as a kid? Did you play a variety of sports or did you just want to fight? Yeah, I mean, I did play a lot of sports, but I was sort of a bit rambunctious. I was always getting in trouble with the teachers. Uh, I did get in a few fights at school as well. Um, always seen a bit of a, of a rebel, but um, always been athletic. All right, so how did you get started in martial arts? How old were you and when you first began, and what was that like? Was it love at first sight? Yeah, I mean, I was eight years old when I really started getting into martial arts. My uh, uncle was a national karate champion. My uh, grandfather was actually dropped behind enemy lines when he was 14 years old in World War II. He faked his birth certificate because he really wanted to fight. He, uh, once he got out of World War II, he started fighting in the pubs and that sort of thing. <laughs> and my dad also did a lot of martial arts and, that, uh, and all that. So um, I think it was sort of in the blood, but I also started watching all the Bruce Lee movies, you know, and uh, that inspired me to really get into martial arts. Like what, Enter the Dragon? 
That's the that's the best one. Is that not the best movie ever? That is. Yeah, right, so when you're a kid, like it's already in your blood, it's already in your family. You're hearing your grand your grandfather talk about it, and your dad. But now, what is it about Bruce Lee? There's so many people in the game, in the sport, in the business that just loved Bruce Lee. What was it about that guy people liked so much? What made him different? I think it was his search for truth. You know, in combat, he would have his philosophy: research your own experience, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own. So although he was a movie star. Uh, you know, and doing martial arts in the movies, he was also really searching for that reality and the truth in like pure combat. So I think that's what drew me to, to Bruce Lee. All right, so you're in training and it's going well and you're hitting all your goals and you're moving along and then one day you get into a fight in the street. When that happened, did everything that you had learned and trained for show up for you when you needed it most in that moment? No, exactly. I've told you that story. I think before I was, I was 15 years old, uh, you know, I, I got beaten up pretty badly and I realized that all those choreographed routines that you often learn in martial arts were completely useless and that's when I thought you know I've got to really look at what's worked and that's when I really started to follow Bruce Lee's philosophy. Hmm. So how far along were you in your karate and your development when that happened? I think I was pretty close to uh, I, I shifted to taekwondo at that point and I was close to getting a black belt even you know as a, as a teenager um, and I'd studied a few different arts but um, it really felt like I needed to you know, really analyze what's going to work. And, and that's when I started studying a wide variety of martial arts and um, not just eclectically, like a little bit here and a little bit there, but synergistically, which arts work together. And they come to find out, is it not true also that you heard a similar story about Bruce Lee? The same thing happened to him at some point in his life. Yeah, so I was surprised to find that he also got beaten up, started really assessing, you know, his original Kung Fu. And that's when he started doing the same sort of thing. So a lot of uh, crossover there. Come on, man. Bruce Lee did not get beaten up. Bruce Lee does not get beat up, right? As a kid, he did. Everyone's got to have those times, you know, when they come across some hard times or, you know, get into a fight and they lose. That really inspires you to, to push harder and, and get better. So what was his reaction to that moment? What did he do? That's when he really started digging in and looking at... Um, he actually sort of decided, started looking, what are the immutable principles of combat? Like we talk about risk-to-reward ratio or economy of motion. And when you start assessing martial arts in those uh, with that lens... You can start really seeing what's effective and what's just for show. All right, so you and I, I want to set this up because this is your background. And then ultimately, how did you get into mixed martial arts and UFC? Yeah, I was doing a lot of sort of street self-defense, and that's been my focus and still is, you know, rea realistic self-defense for both civilians, but also for military um, and law enforcement, which I still teach, um, you know, special forces and federal agencies. But I really felt the need to compete. And of course, you can't compete when uh, on the street, right? Not ethically, at least. And so I thought, what is the closest to this combat? And of course, it's, it's mixed martial arts, the sport, which has been rapidly growing. Over, it's massive now, right? So I wanted to test myself. Um, and I'd have a professional fight here or there. And then, you know, I was turning 30 years old. And I thought, well, I don't want to look back and say I could have done this. So that's when I tried out for you know, the ultimate fighter and won that and got into the UFC. All right. So what was that experience like? That was incredible. I mean, for the ultimate fight, you have to live in a house with a bunch of guys for you know, eight weeks and, and fight those guys. And so it's not no TV, no contact with the outside world. That's a little bit of a challenge in itself, let alone the fights every couple of weeks. Um, so it's challenging. It was fun, but I don't think I'd want to do it again. You know, you mentioned that you, you can't compete in the street, at least not ethically. You told me something once. When you and I used to work out, and I think that I did what most guys in my position would do, I did it and it got hard and I quit. 
but we're still friends though, right? <laughs> but you did tell me something once. You said, listen, what, what I teach can be very dangerous and very violent and it has to be used in the right manner. I cannot just teach this to people who I think will not be responsible for it. How much of that is about what you do? And do you take, you obviously take that into consideration before you share what you know, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, <clears throat> so I'm very uh, restrictive about who I train because I want it in the right hands. I'm talking about eye gouging, biting, you know, this sort of thing and teaching how to fight with uh, weapons. And so uh, you, you don't want that getting in the wrong hands, right? Because then you're, you're giving the bad guys the tools and you, you want it for the good guys. So what do you teach the military? I would imagine you teach them things that you cannot do in the cage. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, basically everything I teach the military is everything that's banned in the UFC, right? So headbutts, gouging the eyes, snapping the fingers, using weapons. That type Fish of hooking? Fish hooking, absolutely. I got you. All right. So this all leads us to the movie. Now, when you and I first met several years ago, you were fighting professionally. You were doing great. You won the Ultimate Fighter. I was looking for somebody to train with. I found you. You were tremendous to work with. And you started to talk about the movie. You started to talk about the movie. But ultimately, how did you get from professional fighter to movie producer? <laughs> yeah, well, I got injured training with a future heavyweight champion in the UFC, which had about 80, 90 pounds on me. For BC Why Olympic. were you doing that? <clears throat> Just had a fight coming up. I needed some training partners. You know, big mistake going with someone 90 pounds heavier than you two weeks before a fight. Uh, tore ligaments in both of my knees and thought, okay, that's it. I've got six months now where I can't really train. Thought, how can I spend my time optimally? So I started digging into the research for optimal recovery and performance. And that's when I came across a study about the Roman gladiators. And they analyzed the bones of the only known burial site in the world, uh, uh, 68 full gladiator skeletons. And the scientists analyzed and said, look, they're eating almost exclusively, if not completely, a plant-based diet, which shocked me. Uh, so I really started digging into it. And I thought, I got to start making a film about this and, uh, you know, spread, my, um, spread the word and, and share the journey. Yeah, but I bet it didn't happen that quickly. I mean, for instance, I thought that real men eat meat. I thought that's what we've always been told. I thought that even when you and I met, you would have said that to me, right? <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, I thought, I remember walking into a restaurant in Orange County uh, maybe like eight years ago, and uh, the chicken was spelt funny on the menu. <laughs> I said, well, why is it spelt like that? Well, this is not real chicken. It's made from plants. I said, well, where's the real chicken? No, we don't have any. Okay, well, what, what about some beef? No, we don't have any. This restaurant's all plant-based. And I literally walked out. I wouldn't have had a single meal, you know, without um, some animal products. I thought that as an athlete, I needed them. And as a man, I needed them. And it turns out that's just all bullshit. It's completely marketing. All right, so those, those are two really key points right there. I thought as a man, I needed it. And I thought as an athlete, I needed it. That part about being a man, you know, these stereotypes, of course, the opposite is not only do you need to be a real man, you have to eat real meat, but what's the alternative, right? If you're a vegetarian or you're plant-based, what does that make you? Yeah, exactly. A wimp, I mean, I, worse? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I always thought that, you know, the stereotypical vegan, and there is a lot of them, I think, you know, it's like tree-hugging hippies, not there's anything wrong with that. It just wasn't me, you know? And so, um, I thought, thought that not eating meat made you soft and weak, and actually it's the opposite. What do you mean? How so? Well, I mean, so first of all, people think about protein. That's a massive myth um, that we need to get protein from animal products. All protein originates in plants, and animals are just the middlemen <clears throat> actually doing a disservice. So they, um, they rob the food of the fiber and the phytonutrients, and they throw in there some uh, inflammatory molecules and... Um, they uh, compound the pesticides and the, uh, the heavy metals. So um, especially around blood flow, for example, um, animal products will hinder blood flow, plant foods improve it. And so there's a, a scene in the film around re erections 
um, where a group of athletes eat a plant-based uh, diet on, uh, on one day and then a plant-based meals on the other day. And you can see significantly improved um, erectile function, both duration of erections and the um, rigidity and circumference erections after the plant-based meals. So in other words, those dudes in Major League Baseball, I don't know if you saw the story or not, but a couple of guys in Major League Baseball got popped because they bought some over-the-counter drugs from a gas station. If these guys really wanted to enhance their junk, they should have gone plant-based and not gone to the gas station, right? Is that what you're telling me? That, that's that's absolutely it, yeah. Okay, but what you're saying is also it's not just the marketing. It's like this whole sense of you're macho and you're manly. By eating a plant-based diet, there might be some physical reaction to it that actually benefits this. But James, I want to be very clear about this. It is, is this not the way to get protein and strength by eating meat? Is it dangerous not to eat meat? Is any of this which we've been led to believe true? Well, I mean, you know, certainly you can get plenty of protein and there is plenty of protein in animal products, especially in meat. Um, and, and there is a case for it in sort of underdeveloped nations. If you haven't got enough calories, you know, it might be worth trying to get those calories from meat, right? That's all that's available, certainly. Um, but in, you know, in the Western world, in the so-called developed world, we don't have a protein deficiency. In fact, there's a term for it called kwashiorkor, and not a single case of it, for example, in the United States or in England or in these Western countries. And so, you know, we've got grocery stores and we can go and eat. We, we don't, we have diseases in the Western world uh, of affluence and not of poverty. And that's of overconsumption, not of underconsumption of foods and of nutrients like protein. Um, and again, all protein originates in plants, Right. So animals don't make protein out of, uh, out of nowhere. All calcium that you get from dairy, where did it come from? It came from the plants that the cow ate. So we've been led to believe this, this myth that we need those products, but you can just get them directly from the source and you don't need the middlemen. All right, so when you do your research and you're learning more and more about this, you start to look for other world-class athletes to see if maybe they're doing the same thing. Who and what did you find? Yeah, I mean, it was tough to decide which athletes to put in. I was really shocked at the number of athletes that are actually eating this in this plant-based way now because I think they're starting to see the research. There's a lot of research that's come out in the last 10, 15 years, which is really um, pushing this. So um, it was tough. There was from the, you know, uh, one of the world's strongest men who does a Guinness World Record in the film for the heaviest weight ever carried to Scott Jurek, arguably the greatest ultra runner of all time, who... Um, he ran six and a half marathons in 24 hours, 160-odd miles. Uh, and in the film, he beats the Appalachian Trail record. Um, so all sorts of sports, you know, from um, – we have the Tennessee – 14 players from the Tennessee Titans on plant-based diets. The I've first, talked to those guys about it. They love it. They love it, and they think it makes a difference for the entire team, the guys who are doing it. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they really um, couldn't believe the difference, and they really think that's why they made it to the playoffs for the first time in 15 years. So, you know, nutrition is your fuel, and as an athlete – that, that really not just in the in the short term, but also when we talk about longevity, I'm not just talking about growing to an old age. I'm talking about longevity in the career. How long do you want to... And you look at people like Tom Brady that are shifting towards the plant-based diet and they're getting that longevity, right? Um, Venus and Trina Williams, you know, they're, uh, they're eating this day because they know there's improved performance and they know they've got longevity in their career. All right, so what did it do for you? When you started to do the research, you had torn ligaments in both your knees. What did that do to you in terms of your recovery and how did your body react to it? Yeah, I mean, I recovered, you know, quicker than they thought I would, but I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to say that's why, because, you know, it's not a controlled experiment where we tear one knee and tear the other knee and, uh, and that sort of thing over different times and we test different diets. So I don't want to overstate it. Anecdotally, I recovered quickly. But what I certainly did notice is an improvement in my endurance and my strength. So, for example, you've seen the battling ropes, the 50-foot, two-inch sure. battling ropes. So the most I'd ever got was eight minutes. 
Um, at my gym, if you've got 10 minutes, you've got your name on the wall. And a few people have got 20 minutes. Uh, six weeks after I went on the fully plant-based diet, I went a full hour straight, which just blew my mind. And before, you know, I was in tip-top shape training for the UFC, and I'd only got eight minutes. So you can see the difference there. Just incredible, blew my mind. And then in terms of strength, you know, my bench press had been stuck for a couple of years at 105-pound dumbbells in each hand for five reps. Less than two months in, I went to 115-pound dumbbells uh, for six reps. So, I mean, I, I really noticed the difference. Anecdotally. So the results are real. Let me ask you this. I mean, clearly as a world-class athlete, I could see whereby you might have the resources, you might have the means, you might have the motivation. What about your average nine-to-fiver? What if you're somebody like me and you want to get up and do some uh, cardio, you want to get on your Peloton bike? I mean, is it going to benefit somebody like me? Why should I do that? I know why you would do it. I know why Tom Brady would do it. Why should me and everybody listening do it? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone wants to look better and feel better and have more energy, whether it's just for their day job or running around after their kids, that there, there can be an improvement there right um so that's why people are always reaching for their their coffee and then that sort of thing because they just haven't got the energy now i'm not saying that i don't drink any caffeine because sometimes you need it you know when there's uh, when you're having uh, less sleep but people generally um are eating a lot of junk food a lot of animal products and that's really affecting their energy and i, I really do think um people want better performance whether it's athletic uh, whether it's at their job um there's some stuff showing better focus uh, in the research, and then also uh, better sex as well. <laughs> That's good, and not necessarily in that order, right? By now, everybody knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get into a crash. People could get hurt or even killed. But let's take a moment and look at some surprising stats. Nearly 29 people in the United States die every single day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the past three decades— Drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives every single year. Many people are unaware that driving while high can be just as dangerous. In fact, in 2015, 42% of drivers killed in crashes tested positive for drugs. Not so harmless, is it? And get this, from 07 to 15, marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled. The truth is, driving while high is deadly. Stop kidding yourself. If you're impaired from alcohol or drugs, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI. Drive sober or get pulled over. So there's this great scene in the movie where you're talking about Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz before their first fight. And Conor's like, meat, 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 meat. I eat it for breakfast. I eat it in the middle of the day. Meat, meat, meat. And Nate, man, Nate, Nate is so fascinating just as a guy and a character and the way he approaches things. But Nate Diaz was plant-based. is plant-based, yeah. right? And he won that first fight. What did you think about the two of them and their various approaches? Did that surprise you at all or did you already know that's the way they went about it? Uh, no, I already knew that's where, you know, Nate and, uh, uh, and his brother too, they, they both had really good endurance anyway because they're right. uh, endurance athletes. They that's also it. do triathlons and that sort of stuff, which, um, you know, they both claim the plant-based diet helps them there. Uh, and interestingly, what we don't mention in the film is that Nate, after that fight, then cut down on his animal product. Uh, sorry, not Nate. Um, Connor cut down on his animal product consumption after that fight, which is really interesting. And he felt that he, he lost got, and then cut down, right? Yeah. And then he won in the second fight controversially. And I'm hoping there's going to be a third. Um, but certainly, even in Connor's own words, he felt like he guessed out and uh, felt like Nate had the edge on the endurance. He did, right? That's exactly what happened. So it's kind of a sidebar. What did you think when you saw Nate recently? Because I know you still follow the sport. Three years off, and he shows up the way he did against a top-notch guy like Pettis. What did you think of his performance? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, Nate and Nick, they're just such warriors, you know. And I think they've got it in their blood and from growing up. They're just fighters, right, from the heart. So, um, 
I think he could take ten years off and still come back and, uh, and whoop some ass. Do you think you think Connor's got that same warrior blood? And what do you think happens when he comes back? Like his story, James, is so fascinating that if you're a guy and you have nothing, and then all of a sudden you have everything, and it happens overnight, and you're caught up in that lifestyle, and he is caught up in that lifestyle. Look at the choices he's making outside the cage. He seems to say, I don't know if he meant what he said, but he seems to understand. I've seen this movie before; it ends badly for everybody. I got to pull my head out of my ass, and I got to do it right now. Do you believe him, and do you think he will? Uh, I think he generally wants to, um, but I do think, like, when you get all that money and fame, you know, you don't have the same drive, um, but I'm certainly hoping that he does, and so we'll, we'll just have to see. I talked to Dana White about that, and he said it in another way. He goes, look, when you got $100 million in the bank, it changes a lot of things. It changes <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah. So when you started the movie, all right, now you, you've always had this, like, natural curiosity and fascination but did you know anything about creating content? Like when you started this thing, before all the big names got involved, how did you approach it? Did you even have any equipment to make a movie? <laughs> no, actually, you know, what happened was, um, so I went on YouTube, learned how to do the three-point lighting. I bought a used camera off of Craigslist. And I how got much? the, uh, I think I spent $1,000 you know, on equipment. What kind of camera? Uh, just some, it had, a, it, was like it had a tape in it. It wasn't even digital, I think. Right. Uh, and so... Basically, I called the director of photography, uh, one of the DPs from uh, The Ultimate Fighter, uh, Everett Motta, and uh, asked him what camera to buy and this sort of thing. And I just sort of didn't really have a budget, just started traveling around when I could or getting people when they came into L.A., knowing that that footage might not get used, but I could use that to create some sort of sizzle reel and get other people involved. And, and that's why. So it took a long time to, to do that, um, but I just stayed persistent. And, uh, I'll tell you how long this took. It, it took a long time. I remember when I was still seeing you and working out, you said to me one day, you know, you know this movie I'm working on? James Cameron might be interested. <laughs> and I'll be very transparent with you, my friend. I, I I did not not believe you because you're a very honest guy, but I thought to myself, I would never kill the dream or quash the dream. But James Cameron? Like, how the fuck is that possible? I doubt that. And sure enough, James Cameron is very much involved in this project, very involved. How did you make that happen? How did that come to be? I think, I mean, it's amazing just when you set your mind to something and just, you know, you just you just make every single thing that we've planned to do with this film, the people we've got involved was sort of early on, we planned on doing it and everything, you just persist and persist and persist and you do it. You know, if you don't know someone, you go on social media, you see who they follow that you might know or someone that knows you might know because going through the agents is useless pretty much most of the time, right? So you just try and get through a friend of theirs. Um, but we were introduced to Jim Cameron from uh, Rip Esselstyn who was involved in the film. He was featured in another film early on. Actually, James Cameron watched a film called Forks Over Knives in 2011, went home, threw all the animal products out of his house and hasn't eaten them since. Um, and so we were introduced to Jim uh, Cameron, he was just really into the storyline and, and what we were doing. Um, and he sort of come to the same sort of um, realization that a lot of this was being held back. People weren't switching to a plant-based diet because of this myth that you need meat to be strong and healthy and you need um, meat to be a real man. And so he came on board and then our director, Luis Ahoyos, um, has the most award-winning documentary Let me jump in. That's time. a big-time, big-time, big-time director. How did you get him? <laughs> uh, so Louis, yeah, I mean... I'm trying to, we were at a, a race um, at Talladega watching another plant-based athlete actually that we were filming called Leilani Munter and um, Louis happened to be there and again, most award-winning documentary of all time. And he said, well, I can help. And I said, well, what does that mean? And a couple of weeks later, he said, no, I want to direct it. Um, so we got him on board and then, you know, it just sort of grew from there. It's pretty amazing, right? You were following another plant-based athlete at Talladega and that's how you met your director. I mean, these whole things are so weird, right? <laughs> like, yeah. so your father... 
suffered a heart attack mm-hmm. while you were shooting. Yeah. What kind of an impact did that have on you personally and your approach to the film? Yeah, I mean, it had a big impact on me. My dad's always been fit and healthy. You know, he runs, exercises, he's in good shape. Well, or so I thought, you know, externally. People are going to look good on the outside and not always on the inside, right? Just like a smoker, you can't tell what their lungs look like from the outside. They might look healthy. Um, but my dad, the film was sort of, I was, my journey was focused on performance and, uh, and recovery from an athletic standpoint and for myself. You know, a little bit selfish, essentially. Um, and then when my dad had the heart attack, I started realizing that these same mechanisms that affect athletic performance, the inflammation and the blood flow, in the long term, they can lead to those chronic diseases like heart disease. And that's essentially, you know, what they think happened with my dad is the diet that he's eating. Um, even though traditionally people would think it was healthy, um, he, he had a heart attack. Fortunately, he didn't die. Um, the majority of people that have uh, the first time they know they've got heart disease is when they die from a heart attack, <laughs> right? So right, and then it's too late. Yeah. Now, before I get into your regimen and what you eat, because I know people are interested, I want to just share one quick story. One year, you came with me on Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and we hung out. We did some work together. But I remember at that time, you brought your own food. And I was really impressed, but it seemed like, man, that is a pain in the ass. I, I can't even imagine. Like, how did you bring a week's worth of food and make those choices on the road? So I think a lot of people th- hearing this right now might think plant-based. All right. It's a special diet. Therefore, A, it must be more expensive than what I'm currently doing. Because why do people eat fast food? It's cheap and it's fast and it's easy. A, it's probably more expensive. B, I know it's a pain in the ass to find this food and to prepare this food. Are either of these things true? Is it more expensive and is it a pain in the ass? Yeah, I mean, there's two, two questions there. So I think in terms of being more expensive, anytime you go to a fancy, you know, plant-based restaurant or you buy processed, heavily processed foods where the work's being done for you, it's going to be more expensive. But that's also true with animal foods. Um, so there was actually um, research done looking at if people were to eat a plant-based diet versus a diet that had about half the meat of a usual um, meat eater in the United States. And they showed that on average, people would save $750 a year switching to a plant-based diet. And that's because lentils, beans, peas, uh, and those types of things, grains, they're actually cheaper um, per serving than animal products. Um, so certainly if you're eating out uh, at restaurants, it can be expensive, but if you eat the staple foods. I mean, you look at a, a veggie burrito at the fast food joint, it's always cheaper than the meat burrito. Right. Um, And then secondarily, you know, yeah, I do take some of my food with me. Um, There's a difference between being just vegan, which doesn't necessarily mean you're healthy, actually. So when we're talking, we should differentiate here. Tell me the differences. I could be eating Oreos and drinking, uh, you know, soda. And that's that's vegan. That's not healthy. What we're talking about is eating plant foods in, in as close to the natural state as possible. It doesn't have to be your whole diet. You know, we're not saying all or nothing. We're saying all or something. So that could be still some animal products, still some junk food, but eat as many whole plants as possible. So I try and eat healthy, um, and I do take some stuff on the road with me. Although these days, especially in the United States and the Western world, there's so many options. Not only is there all the fast food restaurants now selling plant-based foods, um, but there's also the, the restaurants and the grocery stores. The foods are widely available. All right. So today you're in town. You're sitting here with me. What What is your regimen today? Like what What did you eat for breakfast? and lunch, and what will you eat for dinner? What's today look like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite diverse. Breakfast, I'll usually have some sort of smoothie, um, or this morning I had oats with peanut butter and berries, that type of thing. Um, for lunch, I might have a burrito, you know, just uh, bean and rice burrito, something like that. Um, but there's all, you know, even for dinner, there's so many, whatever f- options there are in a plant-based, whether it's lasagna, or what, you know, whatever it is from a meat-based point of view, you can have that in a plant-based uh, way as well. So many of the foods that you're used to. 
you know, in terms of meat, like is a human species, are we built to consume and digest meat? Yeah, we have no, actually humans have no anatomical, biological or physiological adaptations to meat consumption. So we interviewed the world's leading paleoanthropologists, including Richard Wrangham, who's the head of anthropology at Harvard. So, you know, years ago, paleoanthropologists used to see, well, there's lots of bones around these uh, campsites, but there's something called differential preservation, which means that plant foods, they biodegrade. But now in the last 10 years, they can look at the microscopic plants, right, and see that there were actually there was abundance uh, of uh, plant foods in the diet. So although certainly we're omnivorous from um, an observational perspective, there's no requirement to eat animal products, and we're certainly much more on the herbivorous side. All right, some other benefits to this. Well, let me ask you this. Were you at all concerned? I mean, this is a big, big swing. Were you at all concerned about disrupting or taking on an industry this immense? And what's the reaction from the industry been like? Yeah, I, mean, I got a question at um, the screening of the day. They said, well, you're talking about longevity. How do you think you're going to stay around a long time? You're going against the industry. I mean, you're going to get taken out. Big meat, man. Right. <laughs> that's right. But, I mean, I would have thought that a taken few out, years Taken out, taken out, or? That's what, I mean, that's what the suggestions the other day. But I don't think, you know, I don't, in reality, what's happening is the industry's following the money, Right. And the money is in plant-based now, and that's the way the world is moving. So the big meat producers are now producing, they're either investing in the plant-based meat companies or they're starting to produce their own plant-based meat. So I think they're just going to shift and go with it when the money follows. So I don't think they're going to mind too much. All right. So in terms of marketing, though, big meat is marketing now. Is big meat doing anything differently than what big tobacco did back in the day when they glamorized lung darts and smoking? In fact, when big tobacco had to take a step back, was it not big meat that rushed in to fill the void? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of parallels there. We knew in the 1930s, <clears throat> in the 1930s, we knew that, um, you know, t tobacco was involved in lung cancer. And even in the 1980s, 85, you're still seeing on TV the tobacco um, industry defending uh, smoke, right? And saying, well, it's defending cigarettes. Um, and the same with the meat industry. The meat industry knows that there's good science against what they're doing, but they've been pushing that product. And so they, they use athletes, they use um, doctors to sort of um, push their message. Um, but I do think even like in the last six months, I think it's starting to change. And I think they're starting to see like the first time ever at the Super, uh, the Super Bowl commercial did the Carl's Jr. have, they were pushing the Beyond Meat Burger. So uh -huh. I mean, things really are starting to change even this year. Right. So big tobacco for a long time denied any kind of link between tobacco and cancer. Mm -hmm. Meat Lobby has staunchly denied this as well for a long, long time. Is there any doubt in your mind that there is a link between meat and cancer. It's, it's undeniable. I mean, if you look at the, all of the world's leading health organizations, they're all saying that, uh, you know, processed meats are a, a class one carcinogen, red meat is a class two carcinogen. Um, you know, in uh, this research by the National Cancer Institute, which shows that um, people eating meat once or more a week have a three times increased risk of prostate cancer. And that includes chicken, turkey, fish, things like that. Yeah, it's not just red meat. It's not just steak. No, exactly. I mean, you're talking poultry and fish as well. Excellent. Prostate cancer. So for guys, I mean, you know, just once or more a week, three times your risk. The worst kind of cancer. Absolutely. So we're talking about, like I had a talk with my doctor the other day, and he was giving me some stats on what might be considered hereditary when it comes to cancer. And the numbers were not that high, at least in his opinion. I mean, essentially... Are you what you eat? And is this the, the quickest way to get a disease like that is by what you're putting in your body and not your gene set or how you were born or what kind of life you were born into? Yeah, I mean, certainly your genes are a part of it, but um, they're very small. And it's also about what's called epigenetics. So it's turning on and off 
cancer genes. There's studies being done showing that about 500 genes get turned on and off when you switch to a plant-based diet. It turns off the bad genes and turns on the good genes, the protective ones. So it's really incredible. It's like the genes load the gun, but the diet pulls the trigger. And so that's why you need to focus on what you're putting in your body. Okay, big picture. What kind of an impact would giving up meat have potentially for the environment overall? Yeah, it's massive. I mean, my focus is more on performance and health, but certainly um, it's the single biggest thing that any person could do to help the environment. Bigger than driving an electric car, bigger than changing your light bulbs, bigger than you know showering less. Um, a single hamburger has uh, 2,400 um, liters of water embedded in it, essentially, with all the um, crops that are you know watered and then the, the cows eating those. Um, and if you were to switch to a plant-based diet, you save on average 1 million liters of water per person per year. All right. So if somebody listening right now and says, you know what, I, I didn't see it, but now I do. I want more information. I want to get involved. I want to make this lifestyle change. How do you go about transitioning? How do you go about doing this? Well, uh, fortunately, when the film comes out on September 16th uh, globally in theaters, we're putting a new website up with all those resources. So five out of six people that go meat free end up going back. Um, and it's largely because they don't have the resources. So we're putting out, you know, recipes, shopping tips, eating out tips, all the FAQs, all the science. Um, but more and more now, there's all these recipes on the web. And if you, you know, I'm not saying that fast food is healthy, but if you're going to eat fast food, eat the plant-based version. You know, and that's um, everywhere now. Start learning about food. Um, and uh, I think it's not actually not as difficult as people think. James, how long did it take you to make this movie? <laughs> well, the idea started in 2011, and I started filming with my own camera. By the time we'd raised funds, it was 2013, and uh, we'd shot some preliminary footage, but it just wasn't... We felt for this demographic we needed a world-class crew that was really in interesting stories. We felt like we needed a master storyteller, and uh, just world-class, you know, everything, from the editor to the music supervisor. So you gave yourself the job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot of work, but um, we put it on hold in 2014, and then we, uh, we relaunched in 2015 and just went from there. So essentially, it's been almost eight years. What was that process like for you? <clears throat> well, it was grueling. And um, I think if you'd have told me how long it was going to take, I would have said, well, I'm not doing it. You know, I told my wife, I think I'd be done in 2013 or 14. And, and here we are, 2019, and it's finally coming So out. what kept you going and what did you tell her in the process? <clears throat> um, I think I just, what really drove me to keep making this film, I felt like I'd been lied to my whole life you know, from my parents, not that they meant to, that's just what they knew, from the marketing, I felt like I'd been lied to, and I hate being lied to, you know, so I thought, I've got to get this information out, so I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing until we got it done. All right, so tell me again, when does the movie drop globally? When can people see it? September 16th, we're actually doing this the one night only, that includes uh, 20 minute of bonus content, that's global theatrical around the world, and then after that, unfortunately, for contractual reasons, I can't say when it's coming out, but it will be widely available elsewhere online uh, after that. All right, so what do you do after that? Once this is done, then what? Yeah, I mean, people say, you know, what's your next movie? Well, for one, I'm not making another movie. Uh, that is there's way more work than I anticipated. Um, we're going to just keep working on promoting this message. You know, we'll be doing uh, an app, some resources, books, just you know, providing people resources so they can make that transition towards more plant-based eating. James, my man, it's been a long time since you and I came together. Could not be more proud of you or the project. I've watched the movie. I think it's outstanding. I know you had a dream. I know you had a vision for it. Man, these things are not easy, but you stayed the course. You stayed on the path. You got it done. Congratulations on a great message and an amazing movie. I'm proud of you. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jim.
prepare for all your road trips. Before your travels begin, visit O'Reilly Auto Parts. Simple preventative maintenance. Before you go, we'll ensure a safe journey. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. James, Lightning Wilkes. That is an amazing conversation. Really interesting. This is why we have this podcast, so we can switch it up and do something different and flex our range. And trust me when I say this, that was not agenda-based. I'm not here to push the plant-based diet on anybody, but the information that I just heard and that you just heard really is fascinating, and it's worth hearing, and now he's got my attention. I am very interested in learning more about this. And speaking of getting something from it, while you're still here, make sure you get subscribed. We have been doing nothing but bringing you the very best guest for nearly two years now. So smash that subscribe button and never miss another episode. And I appreciate it so much. I will see you next Wednesday. Until then, here are your coveted voicemails. First new message. I believe that Smack Smack is an eight-year-old horse. You know, it's like always dreaming. Or into mischief. It's, you know, something a little bit older, but I like it. I really like it. Love ya. Message saved. Next message. Say how many is day. I'm uh, trying to remember what the damn bags were that you're pushing. Oh, I'm finding I'm out. Message deleted. Next message. What's up, Rome? This is Daniel in the 505. Went to your tour stop in 2004, and your, your staff treated me like royalty. I was recovering from cancer. You really lifted my spirits. Oh, and also, Radiohead, you're right, Creep is the best song, but if you've got to go with a 1A, got to go with Fake Plastic Trees, which is above 95% of the clones' intellectual ability because they use similes and symbolism. All right, brother. Have a good evening. Bye. Message saved. Next message. I'm actually here in Nice, France. Am I the only person to call the pod from France? Au revoir. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, what up? Curtis in Colorado. Great to have you back on the, the airwaves here in Denver again. Good to get caught up with the podcast. Good to be good. To be good. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. This is Trevor in the 321 Merritt Island. Jim, congratulations on the way long overdue Hall of Fame. You deserve it. You, you know, you're the best in the business. I love the clones. I love the family. I love the jungle family. Thank you for bringing that to us. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim, what's up? This is David from Buffalo calling in about Andrew Luck retiring. I mean, Colts fans have got to be in shock. But if there's one man that can overcome this, it's Frank freaking Reich. To quote the great Jim Ross, Frank Reich is tougher than a $2 steak. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. It's Andy from Austin. So back in the day when I worked at Valco Mall in Cupertino, I met Kina Turner. We had a cooking with Kina. And they took us to the restaurant down the road on Stevens Creek Boulevard and then we went up to his house and I left. Message deleted. Next message. Jim, how you doing? Bill Ryder, Ryder than you here. Just calling to congratulate you on the Hall of Fame and I really appreciate you letting me guest host on your program. Even though the clones don't like it, when I guess host three to four days in a row and all I talk is basketball.
message deleted. You have no more messages.